You may go ahead and have a seat. Good morning and welcome. And I would ask if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, where we're going to be this morning. And as you're finding your way there, I'll kind of give you an overview of where we're going to be. Um, Today, uh, Jesus is once again being approached by a group who is not a big fan of his, the Pharisees, um, in an aim to try to trap him with a question that, from their vantage point, would be a no-win situation for Jesus. Um, and it's typical with Jesus, is one of the things I, I love about him, um, is that he always answers these questions in an unexpected way. He always answers these questions in a way that transcends the typical way that humans think, that transcends our cultural norms, that gets us to, that challenges us on a whole other level, God's level, rather than the way that man thinks. This is no exception. And undoubtedly, he catches the Pharisees off guard. Certainly, he does his own disciples, as we'll read in a moment and find out. I'm going to give you a heads up to the big idea before we even start here, and that is that the gospel will help you to better understand marriage. And marriage, in turn, will better help you to understand the gospel. If you don't know what I mean by the gospel then I hope and I pray and I think that by the end today you'll have a better understanding of that even as we look at what marriage is. If you don't understand what I mean by marriage in terms of how the Bible defines it, then I hope and pray that by the end of today you'll have a much clearer picture of God's design for marriage. We have a half hour plus to cover all this and I know that you're probably gonna be left with some questions at the end. So I wanna acknowledge that up front and it just highlights for us the need for this to be a starting point for exploring these truths about God, especially ones that intersect as intimately as the subject of divorce and and marriage. And these kinds of conversations need to continue to happen outside of here in the context of community we have at Terra, specifically in small groups and tribes. But please, as things resonate with you or strike a chord positively or negatively today, don't hesitate to reach out to Pastor Matt or myself as well. Uh, This is a raw subject for many people, okay? Um, I want to acknowledge a few other things before we dive into this reading. Number one, this is a passage on divorce, so why isn't that a part of the big idea? Well, that's actually to make a point in and of itself. Um, I've heard evil defined before as the lack of how things are supposed to be. Similarly, divorce is the lack of something that belongs to marriage. And so rather than talking about what divorce is, which I'm pretty sure most people in this room have a good idea of, the important question to ask is what is marriage and why is marriage the way that it is so that we can understand why divorce is not a part of God's design for marriage. Second thing, you're single, so what does this have to do with you? And I would say a lot. If you approach today this teaching of Jesus with a posture to receive. And if you desire to be married one day, then you're going to be that much better prepared for marriage. Honestly, guys, divorce becomes much more likely path for those who enter into marriage who don't first have a robust understanding of what God's intentions and designs for marriage is. Beyond that, marriage isn't just about personal fulfillment on a human level. Marriage is a picture of something profound we're gonna talk about today that is meant to benefit this whole earth, all of creation, married or unmarried. So please hang in there and hear what Jesus has to say to you this morning if you're single. 
Finally, I want to acknowledge this is going to be a hard subject for a lot in this room today. I imagine that there's not a person in here who hasn't been touched by divorce on some level, whether that be you've been through a divorce, maybe right now you're considering a divorce, secretly or openly. Maybe you've been impacted by divorce in your family when you were growing up as a child. And there's probably no one in here who at least doesn't know someone you care about deeply who has been impacted by a divorce. So it's gonna touch a sore spot for a lot of people this morning. My point today, please hear this, and more importantly, Jesus' point is not to condemn. Rather, it's to compel us towards God's design for marriage, which is for our good, all right? Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, there is grace. At the same time, divorce is a distortion of the most profound truth in the universe. And so, because it can have such devastating impacts upon people personally and maritally and even communities, we have to face this subject honestly, we have to face it head on, whether it's to avoid error for the first time or to avoid repeating that error, okay? With all that in mind, join me in reading Matthew chapter 19, verses one through 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is the one spot that I'm going to pause and just interject here for a moment so you understand what it is that he's asking this morning. When, he said, when they are asking him, is divorce uh, justified for any cause, lawful for any cause, the idea here, the NIV, a different translation, draws out more effectively, for any and every reason. Not for any cause as in, is there any reason why somebody can legitimately get a divorce? Their question was about any and every reason. Their question was, is there any limitation to the number of possible grounds for divorce? Okay, they're on a different wavelength in thinking on the subject than Jesus, as will become apparent. So they ask him this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause or any and every cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs that made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So there's a lot going on here. Here's kind of our roadmap for this morning. We're gonna take a look at these different main points. The first one is the wrong starting point of the Pharisees. 
that was betrayed through the question that they asked. Secondly, we're going to look at the right question that Jesus answers without it actually having been asked, but he completely changes the focus of this conversation. Thirdly, we're going to look at the significance of sex, which is implied through the exception clause that Jesus gives here. And then fourthly, we're going to look at the need for supernatural and strength, supernatural strength, which is implied by Jesus' answer to the disciples' kind of incredulous response here about his teaching on marriage. So first, the wrong starting point. The Pharisees here are trying to trap Jesus in a response here that would inevitably be wrong in someone's eyes, okay? Divorce at the time of Jesus amongst the Jews was, was considered to be acceptable. And there are actually two main views that had broken out on this subject, both of which stemmed from this Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 24, the only place in the Old Testament that actually has any kind of teaching, even if indirectly, on this subject of divorce. And in that passage, there's actually a scenario that's being described which talks about a husband divorcing his wife because of some indecency that he found in her. And so there were two factions that arose in Israel's history based upon this one passage in all of the Torah, the Old Testament here. And those two factions were represented by two different rabbis, um, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, their followers known as the Shemites and the Hillelites. And they argued with each other over how broad or narrow the grounds for divorce could and should be. So Rabbi Shammai took on the more conservative perspective, and his view and his followers believed that it was only for the reason of divorcity, divorce excuse me, that a man should divorce his wife. And by the way, there was only provision made for men to divorce their wives at that time. And then on the other hand, Rabbi Hillel it, took a more liberal approach in which they understood the word indecency that's used in Deuteronomy 24 to encompass basically any kind of displeasure with your wife. So she could burn a meal or she could give you the wrong look and that would be justifiable uh, rationale to divorce your wife in their view. Understand that was the common and popular view in that day. And you can understand why. There's a lot more freedom, at least from the standpoint of the man in that culture, uh, without there being such a narrow limitation of grounds for divorce. Hence the question they ask Jesus because of this debate going on, is it wrongful to divorce one's, wife, uh, divorce one's wife for any and every reason? That's why they're asking this question. Somebody is going to be vindicated and somebody is going to be alienated by Jesus' response and either way it's a win-win in their minds because somebody's going to hate Jesus all the more. The problem was they had the wrong starting point. Again, Deuteronomy 24, only place in the Old Testament with any kind of teaching on divorce, but understand, it wasn't advocating for divorce. Rather, it was regulating a situation where the original principles for marriage had already broken down. All right, so the scenario describes this woman who had already been married and then divorced by one husband, and he would get to keep the dowry that her father had given them in their marriage. And it describes her as getting married to another man. And for whatever reason, whether because he divorced her or he dies, the law that's in view here is to prohibit that first husband from marrying her again and so acquiring a second dowry. The whole point of the scenario was meant to protect this woman in an incredibly broken situation and is in no way a direct advocation for divorce. 
right? It's a law that's meant to regulate a principle that's already been broken, that principle being that marriage is a covenant that's meant to last forever. As an aside here for a moment, this is a problem, this how you end up on this path, the wrong starting point, is a problem that's pervasive even in our own culture. There's a tendency to look at exceptions to the rule that exist because of something that's sinful and broken in our world to begin with, and then to turn it into license to go far beyond what God ever intended. We're already on one controversial subject, so I might as well mention another that's analogous to this, and that would be abortion. The historic view and biblical view that the church has held to throughout history is that God is the author of life and that life starts in the womb, Psalm 139, and elsewhere. But because we live in a broken world and because there are laws and regulations that come into play to deal with the brokenness of our world, such as an ethical situation that might arise where perhaps a woman's life is in jeopardy because of the pregnancy, Laws are enacted and all of a sudden, all of a sudden what happens is this exception to the rule becomes the basis for the normalization of something, in this case abortion, so that in every, in every instance abortion is okay at any point in time during the pregnancy. This happens because exceptions due to sin, in this case because of health or health complications or death, possible death, are looked at as justifications for something that was never considered good to begin with, that was a reflection of something broken about our world. Don't use this analogy to condemn any more than talking about God's original design for marriage, not including divorce, is to condemn today, but I want you to see how as humans, when we are unmoored from the truth, we can end up so far from God's design for things because we shift the starting point to somewhere completely different than where God's starting point is. And being a Christian who goes to church does not make you immune from this. The Pharisees themselves were the equivalent of the church at that time. And this is the very thing that they were doing. We think of the Pharisees as being those who impose these hyper-strict regulations that go above and beyond upon people. Legalism, right? But we can be just as much Pharisees and like them by accommodating standards that are less than God's by moving the starting block for his original purposes and designs for things. And while it may feel right, it never ends well. So Jesus knows that the debate over the legitimacy of divorce here is really to sidestep the real question. And the real question is, what is marriage to begin with? And he answers that question that he asks implicitly here, by going back to the original order of things as God created and intended them to be. He goes back to Genesis, before the fall. And he actually answers them by quoting from two different verses in the Genesis account, Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. And I'm going to walk through with you very briefly here four different principles we can understand about what God's design and intent for marriage is from these two verses that he, excuse me, that he quotes. Jesus first says in response to them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The first principle is simply this, guys. Jesus is saying marriage is between a man and a woman. And I'll leave it at that except to say this. 
it seems to me like Jesus could have gotten his point across in this context about the permanency of marriage just with the second quotation he's about to give. But he nonetheless decided to include this detail because he felt it was an important enough thing to understand about marriage. And that should not be lost on us. So he continues. Now he brings Genesis 2.24, a different verse, into the equation of what God's original intent and design for marriage is. And he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so there are no longer two but one flesh. Second principle, marriage is a bond that is meant to be permanent. Marriage is a covenant commitment to cling to another man or woman that is consummated by the sexual union between a husband and a wife. The words that are used here, hold fast, it it means to be attached to, glued to, cemented to something. To quote R.T. France, a commentator on Matthew, the one flesh metaphor, if it is taken seriously, makes marriage indissoluble. To break it is like tearing apart a single body. It's this visceral illustration, but it's a reality of what is happening. Now, while we don't experience a literal tearing physically, at the same time, it's not meant to be merely symbolic here. It's describing something that happens on a spiritual level that's consummated through the sexual union of a man and a woman. This will become extremely important later when we talk about the exception clause that Jesus gives and why it's even there. Third principle, coming out of this same verse Jesus quotes in Genesis, marriage, and this is kind of a newer one for me to consider, but marriage is meant to be a bond that is stronger than that of a parent and child. It's one of the implications of this teaching. Notice how the man and the woman are to leave their parents and are joined in this permanent one flesh union to each other. Listen, we can get this, those of us in here who are parents, that as hard as that relationship can be with your child at some point in time, you'd never consider, you'd never disown your child. And yet the marriage covenant and bond here is expressed as being even more strong and permanent than that which we experience with our children. Finally, Jesus sums up his first response here by saying, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The fourth principle here is if God is the one who's done the cementing in this union between a man and a woman, then it's not for us as humans to try to undo it. When we look at marriage as purely a human institution, then we see something in it that is, we see it as something that is purely to serve our own purposes our own gratification, our own happiness, and when it no longer serves those purposes, then rationally, we can easily justify why we should just dissolve it and end it, and it's not a big deal. But when you understand marriage as something that God created, Jesus says and attributes here that he is the one who ultimately joins you and your spouse together, then we have no place in terminating that relationship. God has authored something on a soul level that is not ours to undo. Now, the strong language that Jesus is using here from Genesis that conveys permanency, something that's unbreakable, something that's unnatural if we were to end, why does he do this? Well, it's hinted at throughout the Old Testament. But the answer isn't fully seen and revealed in all of its complexity and beauty until we get to the cross. 
And the description that most, is most fully formed on this comes actually well after the cross in the words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter 5 when he writes about how marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ's unbreakable relationship and enduring faithfulness to his bride, the church. Jesus in Ephesians 5 is likened to a groom and the church to a bride where the groom sacrifices his life for the bride and the bride, on the other hand, lovingly commits to following the groom and his servant leadership for her good. And please hear this, the focus here isn't on the sex of the, pers- of the bride, right? This isn't meant to emasculate men. This isn't meant you have to become a woman in order to be part of the bride of Christ. The focus here is on the nature of the relationship between Jesus and the church that's designed to be showcased also in human marriage. And that is enduring faithfulness, a faithfulness like Jesus to his own people, a covenant that cannot and will never be broken. Think with me for a minute. We've been in Matthew for a while. How many instances of human brokenness and failure has Jesus encountered along the way, along this journey to this point? And not just in instances with those who are his enemies, like the Pharisees here who are trying to trap him in his words, but also in the selfishness and the hard-heartedness that we even see in Jesus' own disciples. And the worst is yet to come. In Jesus' time of greatest need, his closest followers and friends would abandon him. Jesus had every opportunity along the way to say, enough is enough. These people are too corrupt, too sinful. I've given them enough chances. They've never reciprocated the love I deserve. All I've done is sacrifice for them, and all I get in return is the cross. But he doesn't. Instead, when he finds himself on the cross, he says something quite to the contrary. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, Jesus died for you and for me, knowing full well that we weren't worthy of God's love because of how good we are at reciprocating it. He remained faithful to the point of death because Jesus' love for you and for me transcends your failure. It isn't based upon the what have you done for me lately mentality. He loves you because you are his. He, He loves you because he is love and that is the most secure love possible because no wrong action toward him could ever be the source of jeopardizing his love toward you. He will never leave and forsake you. Do you receive that this morning? That is a part of what it is to understand and receive the gospel and marriage is meant to be a picture of that kind of love well if that's the case you may ask yourself if marriage is meant to be a picture of this unwavering devotion then what about the exception that Jesus seems to give here what's that all about well first the idea of an exception here is understand very different than the way that the Pharisees were viewing things The Pharisees, even the most conservative of them, the Shemites, understood divorce to be something that was acceptable and right. They even understood it to be uh, commanded here in Deuteronomy 24 by Moses. But Jesus makes a distinction between what is commanded in their eyes and what God has rather permitted in rare instances because we live in a broken world. And so after his first response to them, they respond to him and he does again saying this. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, very briefly, kind of a recap of what the church historically has understood to be two different grounds, biblical grounds for divorce. Number one, we came across this a couple of years ago when we were in 1 Corinthians together uh, in chapter 7, and the Apostle Paul gives this uh, 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 grounds of abandonment by an unbeliever as one of the potential grounds for divorce. So understand that the pagan culture at the time, Christianity was a foreign concept to, so as people were coming to Christ in Corinth, this Greek culture, um, a lot of times it would be one spouse who's coming to faith and not the other. And what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 is, stay married to them, the non-believing spouse, so long as they are willing to remain with you. And the reason he gives is because the, the believing spouse, he says, makes the marriage holy. What he means by that is you now have faith in Christ, the spirit of the living God dwelling in you, so you're bringing the presence of God into your marriage and you pray and you hope that this person comes to faith. But Paul goes on to say that if the unbelieving spouse wants nothing to do with them and leaves them, probably because of their faith and how different of worldviews um, it is between that of, of pagan Greece at the time and Christianity, then he says they are not bound to that marriage and there's a permission to remarry. And we gave a fuller explanation of that in 1 Corinthians when we covered chapter 7, so you can feel free to dig for that, and we might even try to get that online for you this week if you want to uh, learn a little bit more there. But I want you to hear what Paul didn't say. Paul didn't say as the men or women were coming to faith and their spouse was still an unbeliever that you should hope or pray for or, or seek to um, build momentum towards the dissolution of this marriage. No, he, he actually advocates for staying married, if at all possible, even to someone who's an unbeliever, which you may have so much not in common with anymore as a result. Because marriage is a picture of Christ's incredible, undying faithfulness for his bride. How many times in the Old Testament does Israel wander off wayward, rejecting and spurning their God, and God waits patiently, even pursues them at times? They act the part of the unbelieving spouse. That's one ground. The other ground for divorce is what we find in our passage today. In Matthew 19 and in the parallel passages that we find in the other gospel accounts. And it's this exception of what is translated here as sexual immorality. The word in the Greek is porneia. Elsewhere in the New Testament it's used to mean more broadly various forms of sexual immorality. But because of the context that we're in here, it's having to do specifically with adultery. Okay? The porneia, the sexual morality that's being referred to here, is adultery. So at first glance, then it seems like Jesus' view here aligns with that of the Shemites. It's, you know, that he's no more conservative than they are. But here's the difference. The Shemites believed that if adultery occurred, it was the right of the man to divorce his wife. Moreover, he should do it because they understood this to be a command in that instance. But hear this, this is so important. Jesus isn't so much giving a ground here for divorce as identifying what has already happened by virtue of the adultery that has taken place. In other words, so significant is the act of sexual intimacy to God 
that just like that act serves to consummate and to bind together a husband and a wife in marriage, it is also what breaks that binding. It could be argued then that Jesus isn't necessarily offering an exception here. He's just stating the fact of what happens when this kind of infidelity takes place in marriage. And by the way, understanding the gravity and the seriousness of sex here isn't just for married people. Do not buy into the lie of this world that would tell you that sex is not a big deal, that it's merely a physiological experience and nothing more. Sex does a binding work in people's souls, which is why it is only intended to be something that's shared between a man and a woman who've already covenanted themselves together in marriage for life. And each time they are intimate, it is their way of saying to one another again, we are one till death do us part. And I just want you to know that again. If you are a Christian here today, or if you even simply understand Jesus' words here on marriage and sex, then if you are having sex outside of marriage, whether you are married or whether you are single, you are in essence saying to that person, I do not care about you enough to wait until I have fully committed myself to you. And at that point, what is it about but merely self-gratification? And self-gratification and self-love and self-happiness is ultimately what leads to the temptation to divorce to begin with because most instances of divorce are precipitated by a husband or a wife or both who feel unhappy and ungratified and unloved in their marriage. And this is why that you should be wary if anyone tells you that sex outside of marriage is not a big deal because it completely misses the point. It is a gift that God has given uniquely to affirm and then reaffirm the commitment to remain attached and cemented and glued in one flesh to that other person for your whole life. One other note here on the exception clause before we move on. Hear this, Jesus isn't commanding or requiring a divorce to take place if there has been adultery in marriage, unlike the Shemite group. It is something he's permitting given the profound tie that exists to the act of adultery and what that does to a marriage. But if the gospel is about anything, it's going to great lengths to seek reconciliation, if at all possible. Please understand that if you come to Pastor Matt or myself or your tribe leader at Terra, we're always going to explore with you the possibility of reconciliation first, if at all possible, if your spouse has sinned against you in this way because of the truth that we see in the gospel. Just read the book of Hosea sometime in the Old Testament. It's about a, a prophet whose wife prostitutes herself to other men over and over again and over and over again. God calls Hosea to pursue her in reconciliation. Not because he's cruel. Not because he doesn't want Hosea to be happy. But because he wanted Hosea and he wanted Israel and he wants us to understand how it feels when we commit spiritual adultery against him in our idolatry. And yet, at the same time, how he'll take us back every time that we turn to him in true repentance and seek to be reconciled. Well, maybe at this point you're feeling like when it comes to the 
the standard that Jesus is setting for marriage, this permanence, this is just too high. Like, who can do this? If this is true, then who should get married? Well, funny you should be thinking that because that's exactly what the disciples were thinking in verse 10. So they respond to this teaching that was totally unexpected by Jesus with these words. If such is the case of a man with his wife, then it is better not to marry. Now understand, this was probably a facetious comment by the disciples. When I read it this time around, I'm like, I wonder if they're saying that with an edge of joking to them. And I read a couple of commentaries and they brought out the same thing. I mean, you can totally picture it, can't you? Like, they hear this radical teaching, they're in a moment of kind of discomfort over like not having expected this and they're like ribbing each other. A lot of them were married, the disciples. Like, well, man, it'd be better just not to be married then, right? Jesus overhears them, but he does... He does the buzzkill thing here of responding seriously to what was probably meant to be a joke with a deadpan response. I I do this to my my wife sometimes. She doesn't exactly appreciate it where she'll take something seriously or she'll say something jokingly and I'll take it seriously, literally. Sometimes it's just because I've missed the tone of of the joking tone and sometimes it's because I just find it amusing to be a killjoy. But Jesus here is not too dense to have picked up on the facetious comment that his disciples were making. What it was is he wasn't going to let them get off the hook with this facetious comment that was spoken out of discomfort. So instead, he uses their words to capitalize on what he knew they were already feeling, which is that this is impossible. And the disciples, understand, probably didn't have singleness primarily in mind. For those who were married, they were probably just thinking about the standard that had just been imposed upon them for marriage. But that's where Jesus takes them seriously. This saying that it is better not to get married, the one that the disciples had just said, can't be received by everyone is what Jesus says. In other words, you're suggesting it would be easier if you were married in light of this high calling that I have just described, but you don't know what you're saying. Because unless you're actually called to singleness, then it would be just as hard, if not harder. In other words, guys, the grass is not greener. Jesus' point, ultimately, I think, is this. What God has called you to, he will equip you for. But it will require supernatural strength and dependence on him to get that. So, if you've made yourself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, which I understand to be not somebody who's literally castrated themselves, but somebody who in their state of singleness has committed themselves to be faithful and to trust God, whether that be uh, called to celibacy in your singleness or just currently single even if you desire to be married. It will be difficult at times, but God will provide for you in the midst of it and getting married wouldn't make it any easier. And if you're married, it will be difficult at times, but God will provide for you in the midst of it. And divorcing your spouse or longing to be in that state of singleness would not be any better or easier. And that may be hard for you to believe, but the best place that you can possibly be is in the center of God's will for you. And if you're married, then remaining in that marriage is what is the center of God's will for you, with rare exceptions such as we've talked about today. Now, I know that there are questions that this passage and sermon have begged that I've not been able to answer. What about in the case of somebody who's in a serious abuse situation within their marriage? Is the abused spouse called to remain? What about in the case 
uh, of remarriage for a spouse who's been the one who's been wronged, sinned against in a marriage? Can they remarry? I'm not trying to avoid these things today, but I actually bring up these subset of questions to make this point. We are a community of faith, and a part of what it means to be a community is not just to pronounce principles and judgment on each other at a surface level. We need to actually enter into each other's lives, hear stories, be learners and listeners first when it comes to walking through these kinds of difficult questions with people. There may be principles that are universal that actually have the same application at the end of that process as you thought they would at the start, but you need to take the time to bear burdens, to understand suffering that exists on both sides of the equation in broken marriages before we seek to answer these tricky, difficult questions. The other thing that that leads me to say is we need community to do this. Marriage is not meant to be something that is worked through in isolation. It's way too difficult of a thing for us to fix on our own. We need Jesus and we need the, the church, the body of Christ that he's given us. We need the church, we need each other to speak, uh, to, to, to strengthen, to encourage, and to comfort one another. We need each other to speak truth into each other's lives. Listen, like everybody in their marriage at some point in time sees marriage as a one-way street when it comes to who's at fault. We need to allow God's people to enter into our marriages to speak truth precisely in the places that we're blind. The pain you feel from the person on the other side of that marriage isn't illegitimate. But sometimes the only way our heart is softened to be able to see them as Christ does is to recognize where our own fault lies. And we need the body of Christ to help us to do that. Some final words of challenge and comfort, I think, that the gospel, as seen in marriage, provides for us this morning. First, for those of you who may be struggling in your marriage, maybe even entertaining the idea of divorce, even if secretly, the gospel this morning would challenge you to look at Jesus. The gospel this morning would challenge you to consider his faithfulness to you. Listen, the picture of his unfailing love for you is never more true and never more powerful than in the moment you most feel like giving up and yet remain committed to that one to whom you've pledged your commitment for better or worse until death do you part. And we need to heed and allow the exhortation of the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 to wash over us, consider him who endured sinners, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood like Jesus did for you on the cross. For those here this morning who have been divorced, Maybe you were even the one who initiated it and you realize now it was for illegitimate reasons and that you were in the wrong for that. Hear this. Your failure to uphold the picture of Jesus' ferocious commitment to his bride is not the choice and not the sin that severs you from his love for you. You may have broken your covenant vow, but he has not left you. You may have abandoned your spouse in some sense, but he has not forsaken you, and he never will. He loves you and he remains faithful and committed to you despite that decision. And listen, I know that in saying that, one thing I do is enable risking someone here to think, so I'll just get a divorce and God will forgive me and everybody will be better off. But if you are thinking this way, understand that is sinful, that is not honoring the intent and design 
that God has for marriage and you are completely missing the point of the gospel. So please don't let that be your takeaway. Okay? And let me just finish with this. All of us are guilty on some level of not honoring God's design for marriage in our lives. It's true. I'm speaking from experience. Whether it's looking at pornography, whether it's harboring lustful thoughts in your heart and your mind and committing spiritual adultery. Maybe it's that you've committed to never using the D word in your marriage, but you're at the place where you've just resigned yourself to coexist with that person who at one point in time you had vowed to love and to cherish. And it's a functional divorce. Or maybe you've washed your hands clean of any responsibility for the brokenness of someone else's marriage that you see in this community because, well, it's none of my business. Or maybe there's been a wrongful divorce and we're guilty of shunning that person when they really needed his grace. Or maybe in an effort not to ruffle feathers, we enable someone in thinking a divorce is okay when what they need from us is to fight for their marriage with words of truth, even if they're not popular with that person at the time. All of us, on some level, have fallen short of honoring God's design for marriage in our lives. And so all of us need to run to the cross and receive mercy. And it's also only at the foot of the cross that we'll fully understand God's design for marriage. Because as we look at our battered and our bruised and our bloodied Savior, who is there on the cross precisely because of our spiritual adultery, and yet stayed there willingly because of his faithfulness, and his love to you and to me, it is only then that we'll understand why marriage is such a high calling. Would you pray with me? Father, I think I and probably we feel somewhat of what the disciples did right now. And I guess that's good. I pray your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts of helping us to feel how impossibly high your standard for holiness within marriage actually is. And I pray that hearts that need to break and repent over sin in their marriage here would do so. But as a part of the grace I pray you would pour out on us, would you also help us to turn and see how that same impossible standard that we feel so inadequate to be able to fulfill is the standard that you perfectly fulfill and your commitment and faithfulness to us that you will never leave or forsake us. Oh Lord, may that gospel truth pictured in human marriage so imperfectly but perfectly in Jesus toward us, his bride, may that resonate anew and more deeply in our hearts this morning for your glory, for our good, for our joy, for the healing of marriages in this room and broken souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name.